0: As the kids are are grabbing those pages from the back, we remind ourselves of the setting in 1 Samuel as we are looking at the rise of a king. We remember that the nation of Israel is, is in a bit of bad shape. It's been some 400 years since they've entered the promised land, right? But yet there are still enemies on all sides attacking them. The people of God are still struggling with faithfulness to their God Yahweh, still falling into idolatry. There's corrupt leadership. We've read in the tabernacle, the priests are not honoring the Lord. Um, there's really only one prophet, one judge leading the people, that's Samuel, but he is now uh, getting older. He's about to age out. His sons are no good. And so the people of God are rightfully worried about the future, about the next phase of leadership. And so they come to Samuel, they ask him to install a king for them. The nation of Israel has never had a king, but they look around at all the other nations around them and they say everyone else has a king to lead them. Maybe that's what we need. Now Samuel the prophet makes it clear to the people that their motives are are corrupt, that this is not a a good thing. A king in, in and of itself may not be bad, but for them, God in heaven should be their king. And their desire for a human king is looking to worldly ways to fulfill their need. And so Samuel makes it clear to them that their desire for a king and the way and the reason they're asking is, is a rejection of God's role as their true king. And we'll read that again this morning. Now, in light of all of this, we can summarize this period of Israel's history, as, as with many periods, by saying they need help, right? And so this morning, we're going to read how God is going to work and we're going to see the kingdom of God renewed. That's our theme for this morning, is that the kingdom is being renewed. Kids, if you think about what renewal is, I want you to think for a minute about a a toy that you have at home. A favorite toy. Something that you have used so much that it's worn out. Maybe it's an old bike you've had for years. Maybe it's a swing set that you and your brothers and sisters have been tearing up for years. Maybe it's a set of cars or trains. But picture a toy that you have at home that is worn out. It is maybe missing pieces, maybe the paint is peeling, but you are in no way ready to get rid of it, right? You don't want to throw it away and replace it. What it needs is renewal. That's what renewal is. Something that is worn out, that is broken, that that may still have life left in it, but it needs to be made new. It needs to be repaired. It needs to be made new again. And this is going to happen, we're going to read this morning for Israel, and it's going to happen through the installation of their first human king. And we met him last week, this guy by the name of Saul a humble farmer, a donkey herder. Samuel, the prophet, has met with him privately. The Spirit of God has come over. Saul, Saul has has been transformed. He has been made new, right? Samuel has anointed him to be king. But this morning, we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 10, page 232 of the Blue Hardback Bibles. And we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel 10, verse 17, and read how Saul will be set in before the nation, and God will use him to renew... God's kingdom. So let me pray again and then we'll jump into verse 17. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit and how that they work together, collaborating together to transform our hearts. And we pray now that as we sit under your word, as we listen to the inspired word of God, that you would change us and transform us, that you would begin a renewal in our hearts in this church and in your kingdom here on earth we pray, God, that even through this ancient text, that you would speak powerfully. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matriites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. Amen. Amen. So if you are looking at your outline in the bulletin or on the screen or on the coloring page, our first big picture point of this initial section, we'll read two more sections, is that Israel gathers to receive their king. You can fill that in in your notes that Israel is, is gathering together to receive their king. And there's unity here. And we're going to see that theme throughout that all that God is going to do in this passage this morning to bring kingdom renewal will happen through the unity and the gathering and the coming together of God's people. We see at the beginning of the chapter there or at the beginning of the section in verse 17 that they've all come together. Saul is now going to announce the new king to them, but he reminds them of their history. And he says, look, God, remember, brought you up out of slavery in Egypt God delivered you out of, the, out of the hands of your enemies. He delivered you from all the other kingdoms of the world that were oppressing you. And yet, he says in, in verse 17, the Lord says, If it is your desire for a human king, know, the Lord says, know that you're rejecting me. You're rejecting my rightful place over the kingdom of Israel as the one who should be delivering you from your troubles and from your distress. And yet, despite their corrupt and sinful motives, despite their desire for worldly leadership, God is still going to work. He's still going to work, and God does that. He works through even our flawed desires. He works through even sinful motives to bring good out of twisted, faulty plans and requests. And God is going to use even their desire for a king to bring renewal. And so in 20 and 21, at God's command, Samuel lines up all the tribes, likely represented by elders from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he says that he casts lots. Likely something like drawing names out of a hat, right? And he pulls the first name out of the hat, so to speak, and it is the tribe of, of Benjamin. And so then the elders of Benjamin comes forward, and each, each of the clans in Benjamin are represented. He casts another lot and calls out the clan of the Matriites, and then finally, from all of the, the men of, of the clan of the Matriites, Saul's name is chosen. Now this may seem random to us. We don't make decisions this way any longer. But this is the, the sovereign hand of God guiding the process. However, plot twist, right? They're at the, they're at the, the, the benefit auction. And they pull out the, the ticket for the winner of the raffle. And they call out the name, plot twist, the guy's not there. And they're like, Saul of the Matriites. Saul of the Matriarchs. Is there a Saul here, right? He's not there. And so they're like, okay, now now what do we do, right? And so they go back to the Lord and like, is there somebody else that's supposed to come? Is Saul running late? And God reveals to them, and this is, this is funny, you should chuckle. God reveals to them, actually, he's hiding in the baggage, right? He's hiding behind the suitcases and all the supplies that you have brought together. And it, it's kind of odd, right? And now kids, Saul is not playing hide and seek. Okay, this is not a game to him. Some of you like to play hide and seek, but has anybody ever hidden for another reason? Not not because of a game, but because of of some threat or some discomfort. Kids, anybody ever had to hide from a bully? That neighborhood kid that you call, saw coming into the ball field and you ran the other way. Or maybe you've had to hide from your parents because you broke the vase, you haven't told them. Dad walks in and now you run and hide behind the couch and maybe it'll just go away, right? Or maybe you hid in the back of the classroom because you didn't finish your project. And so you figure if you slump down in your seat, maybe your teacher won't call your name. That's basically what Saul is doing at this point. He seems to feel inadequate for the task. Remember, he has already known he's been anointed by Samuel in private. He knows he's going to be the rightful king of Israel, but he's not ready. He's second-guessing himself. He's probably afraid. He probably feels inadequate. Some of it is driven by, I would say, godly humility, but I think some of it is driven by still his remaining sense of, of, of God, are you sure? Am I really the one... And so in verse 23 we read how the elders run over, they pull him out from underneath the pile of suitcases, and they stand them up before the crowd and, and now God's choice, God's sovereign choice is there and it becomes immediately obvious one thing about Saul that stands out, how tall he is. We read that he's a full head taller than anybody else in Israel. He's a handsome man, he's fit, he's tall, he's young. Clearly this guy. Is special right and so hopes are high in the nation and everybody's thinking like this is the kind of king that we want right if if this guy can't lead the nation then we're really in trouble and so in psalm in verse 24 samuel announces he says do you see the one listen whom the lord has chosen to lead you right samuel the prophet is making it clear this is god's choice for the people And Samuel says, there's no one else like him amongst all the people. And the people shout back. They're they're excited and, and, and their hopes are high. They shout back like they do in the movies. Long live the king, right? This is the man, the man that God has chosen fulfilling our hopes. He will bring peace and prosperity to the nation. May he live long And finally now, after generations, there's unity and the people couldn't be more exuberant and they're rallying around what is the establishment of a new monarchy for Israel and they hail Samuel as king and they put all their hopes and all their dreams are now resting on his tall shoulders and they're unified, right? All the people are unified. Well, most of them, we'll read in a moment, there are some detractors. But in verse 25, Samuel now, with the the king laid before them, it says that he lays out all the rights and the responsibilities of the kingship. He announces them to the people. Samuel writes them down. He places them before the Lord, and then the people are sent home. In verse 26, Saul also goes back home to Gibeah. And it seems, at least for a period, that not much has changed in Saul's life. Like, they've never had a king. There's no palace. There's no throne. There's no riches for him to count up, right? they're starting from scratch. And so he just goes back home. We'll see that he goes back to farming at at his dad's uh, estate. One thing that has changed, we see in verse 26, is that there are some men of valor and they go with Saul. Some men whose hearts have particularly been stirred. These are valiant men that have been touched by God. And they're like, if this is our king, we need to serve him. We need to protect him. We need to go with him. So think of this like his, his honor guard, his secret service task force that go now with Saul. But compared to these valiant men, we read in verse 27 about some worthless fellows, right? And we've read this term uh, again previously in, in 1 Samuel. The idea of people that were godless, that were no good, that were worthless. And they complain and they're like, this guy, yeah, he's tall, but how is he going to lead the nation? We've never heard of him. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Nobody knows him and his and his parents. How is this guy going to save us, right? And you sort of roll your eyes and you're like, there's some in every group, right? It's like, come on guys, get on board. God chose him. The nation is united. Why do you have to be complaining? But despite this, despite the fact that that they despise Saul, we read that Saul kept quiet. I love that. He doesn't say a word. Now, in reality, there's actually some truth to to what they say. Like, how can any man save God's people? How can any man deliver them when we've read again and again that God is only the one who should truly be their king? And yet they don't believe, they don't have faith that God can work through this man. So we see this scene. Israel gathers to receive their king, right? And here's what's happening. It's a public ceremony. God's already led Saul and Samuel together by his divine providence. Saul has already been anointed privately, we read last week, but now this is a public display that all the nation gathered together will know that Saul is God's choice. And the whole point of casting lots was, as we read in the Proverbs, when the lot is cast, it's every decision comes by the Lord. Things are not random in this life. God is showing before the nation, as would would have been part of their history and their heritage, to cast lots to seek God's will. God is showing, this is my choice. And despite, as we've said, their selfish motives, God still wants the kingship to be a godly institution. And so Samuel lays out the rights and the duties of the king. And all of his responsibilities and his obligations. Now we don't know all that Samuel said that day, but it's safe to assume that he would have relied upon the existing law of God, the, the Torah, the books of Moses. And Moses had revealed by the divine providence of God in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God's expectations. God had made his expectations clear. And even before they had come into the promised land, he said, He said, one day you will choose a king for yourself, and these will be the responsibilities and the rights of the of the king. And so we read in Deuteronomy 17 that he was to be a fellow Israelite, not a foreigner. He was not to use his position of authority for personal gain. And we read there in Deuteronomy how he was not to seek out horses or wealth or wives. That the king was instructed to rule from God's word. Listen to what it says here in verse 18 and following. When he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children, in Israel. What are the rights, what are the duties of the king? First and foremost, is to keep himself humble, to not seek to use his position for selfish gain, to keep his heart not turning from the Lord, not lift himself up arrogantly above the people, but to serve the people, right? And he was to write out a copy of the the first five books of Moses, to write out the rules and the laws so that he would know them, to read them every day, that he could lead the people as an agent of God, not arrogantly set aside from God, but, but humbly set under God. Now look, the king had a, had a purpose in the kingdom, right? He would rally the people together to give them a purpose as a nation, to give them unity, to lay out the laws and the principles, to, to provide for the people, to lead the army, to protect the people. There was a function and God had a plan and a purpose for how this king would, would serve as, as an assistant manager under the great creator and king in heaven. And here's Saul, the Lord's choice, and he's a tall man, he's a handsome man, the, unite, the nation is united, hopes are high. But, but the standards that God has laid out, the expectations that God has laid out, and what we see in his word, and what Samuel laid out before the people, Saul can't live up to it. And spoiler alert, Saul is a failed king. None of the kings ultimately can live up to the standard, right? Because no matter how tall Saul is, only God, you could say, is tall enough to lead the people, Amen. Only he is the one who can truly be king over his people, that can fulfill the duties of the king to give his people, to give even now us a purpose, unity as a people of God, principles to live by, to provide for our needs, to protect us against the enemy. And praise God, we now have a rightful king in King Jesus who was ultimately the fulfillment of the kingship in Israel. And we now, as a people, we now gather together in unity to receive Jesus as King, to honor Jesus as King. And this King Jesus is one who loves His people, who leads His people well, who doesn't use His position over us for selfish gain, who even as the Son of God, even as the rightful Creator of the world, doesn't set Himself above us. He comes as a king to, to serve us and to lead us. yes, to call us into obedience, but for our own good and for the glory of God. And so King Jesus walks in the ways of God, walks and leads us in righteousness, who works for the plan and purpose of God. Our King Jesus, who fulfills all the kingly expectations of the old covenant, doesn't turn from the right or to the left. He leads us in the paths of righteousness to green pastures and cool waters towards life Abundant. And so I call you and remind you now to honor Jesus as King, to cry out, long live King Jesus for all of eternity. May he sit on the throne of my life. But hear this this morning, coming to Jesus as King is not just a personal individual thing. It's not a private thing. Just as the nation gathered together in unity publicly, corporately to declare Jesus King, we as the body of Christ do that. You don't just make Jesus king on your own. We gather together as a church, as brothers and sisters. In fact, joined by the Holy Spirit with all of God's people across the nations, across the world, across time, in unity. Gathering together to honor Jesus, to receive him, and to look to him. And we do that corporately as the body of Christ. And so trust him this morning. Trust him personally, but trust him in unity with others. Follow him. Follow him in your heart. Follow him in your private life. But find others to join with you, arm in arm, to gather together and say, I call Jesus King. Will you join me? Will you stand with me? Will you honor me? Honor him with me? And so we exalt and lift up Jesus as King. Amen? We go on to read the next section of the story. Read with me, beginning in in chapter 11, verse 1. Let's see what happens after Saul is set in his king, and we read how the people of God are threatened. Listen to this. Then Naash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Naash, make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Naash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes. Yikes! And thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man when he mustered them at Bezek, The people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. Then the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. What what a glorious, exciting story, right? And we see here in the second part of our section this morning that Israel fights to defend their people. You can write that in, kids, in your outline, that we see Israel band together and they fight to defend their people in unity. I love that expression. It says they came out together as one man. We'll come back to that. So, remember the scene. Saul is now king, hopes are high, but everybody just kind of goes home and life seems to return to normal until these foreign enemies, the Ammonites, attack an Israelite town of Jabesh, foreign nation. And their leader besieges the city, surrounds the army, threatens them, and, and the Israelites in the town are, are scared literally to death and they say, look, we'll surrender, we'll make a treaty with you, right? Just don't, just don't tear down our city. And Naash the Ammonite says, Okay, yeah, I'll let you surrender, I'll let you be my slaves, but just one condition. I'm gonna I'm gonna poke out all your eyes and bring shame on your people and make sure that you don't ever have the ability to rebel against me, right? And it's like that that's no small thing, right? And so before they agree to this treaty and surrender, they say, Hey, can we have seven days to think about it? Seven days to see if we have any other options, if anybody else will save us. Now, I don't understand why this enemy king would have given them a week to to ask for help and to look for it, but he does. He apparently thinks that no one's going to come to their rescue. So they send messengers throughout all of Israel, like, we're in trouble. There's an army surrounding our city. Please come help us. Now, remember, at this time in Israel, despite the fact that Saul has been set up as king, right, there's still not a united kingdom. There's still a spread out group of tribes, individual cities, individual, individual landowners, and, and city leaders, and, and, and tribal leaders, and elders. And there are 12 tribes. They worship the same God. But there's not unity. There's not a standing army. There's not a system of, 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 of communication and, and, and government that would unify them. And so then the, the word goes out. Is there anybody that can help us? Saul hears about this, right? We read in verses 4 and 5. He's out in the field with his oxen. He's coming in. He's like, what's everybody so upset about? And they tell him the news. And read, look at verse 6. The Spirit of God rushes on Saul. And how does he react? He is furious. He's overcome with anger. Now we read last week how the Spirit of God rushed on Saul. The same exact language. And what happened last week when the Spirit of God rushed on Saul? He began to worship and pray and prophesy. Now, now we would rather the Spirit of God do that, right? Wait a minute. The Spirit of God is resting on Saul, and now he's furious? Now he's angry? How can the Spirit of God do that? Listen, God gets angry. And sometimes, the Spirit of God can lead us to anger. In fact, I would submit to you that that when someone you love is hurt, it's good and right to be angry. When you see injustice done in God's world among people whom God loves it's appropriate to be angry. The Spirit of God can lead us to anger. The issue is not righteous anger. The issue is our unrighteous ability to handle it and to think we can take matters into our own hands or to backbite or to gossip or to be frustrated or to be petty. That's not godly. But right there on the spot, we read in verse 7, filled with the Holy Spirit, Saul butchers the ox that he's been working with and he sends the messengers out with pieces all over Israel. And he says, I'm putting together an army to fight the Ammonites. And I call on every able-bodied man in Israel to join me in battle. And anyone who will not send men to fight under the leadership of Saul and Samuel, we're going to come butcher your ox like this. Right? And we see Saul step up to the plate. Step up to battle. And the humble farmer that we met a couple chapters ago, he's gone. And the man who doesn't think he's worthy to be king, who tries to talk Samuel out of it, who hides behind the suitcases, he's gone. The scared man who doesn't think he's adequate, he's gone. And what's happened in that moment is that a king is born. And he now steps up to take leadership, to take authority, right? And now the eye of the tiger starts playing, right? Now God is ready to fight. Now God is ready to actually use this man. And the fear of the Lord falls on the people of Israel. And they all come out together as one man. What a beautiful expression. All of these disconnected, disjointed tribes and clans and elders, people groups and family groups, different regions. They come out together as one man unified to fight their enemy. We see the numbers in verse 8, 300,000 from Israel, 30,000 from the tribe of Judah. There's some foreshadowing going on here because we know that the day will come when Israel and Judah will actually be two different kingdoms. And the author is is giving us a heads up about that in the tally of the soldiers. And so in verses 9 and 10, they send word to the citizens of Jabesh that are waiting, still wondering, will somebody come deliver us from this army? They're stuck in this city. The foreigners, this, the, the, the enemies of God are surrounding them. And they send word to say, reinforcements are coming. And by tomorrow, when the sun is hot, tomorrow by high noon, you will have your deliverance. And so Saul, in verse 11, he divides the troops into three divisions, right? Because the Spirit of God is not just giving him courage, but he's giving him wisdom. And now all of a sudden, this farmer is a military general, and he's got strategy, and he divides them up into three units. And they get set into place at nightfall, and at first light in the morning, they invade the Ammonite camp, and by midday, the battle is over. And the survivors of the Ammonites are scattered, and it is a great day, a great victory. And God's people have united, and they finally have a leader. They can finally defend themselves against all of their enemies. And we see Israel fights to defend their people. And this is all happening at the hand of God, their king, who has set up Saul. And God is is gracious. God is gracious to the people. Do you see that? Because even though their demand for a human king was worldly, God is still going to use this human king to lead and defend his people. And Saul becomes, by the Spirit of God, a capable leader to act for the people. Now, now it's kind of funny. It's interesting. Right? The people of God, all along, had all that they needed to defend themselves. Right? Saul didn't do anything other than call them together. They always had the ability, they always had the numbers, they always had the technique, they always had the weapons. They had just failed year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation. They had failed to unite. They had failed to work together. And it wasn't until God set a king over them that they saw the greater victory. It wasn't until they had someone to lead them, someone to call them by the presence of God into unity, that they finally were able to act out in the victory victory that they really always had. Now, friends, listen, we don't have Ammonites surrounding us, thank the Lord, but we too, as followers of God, as the people of God, as the Bible says, a holy nation, we too face enemies. We too have opposition surrounding us as Christians in our generation. We face the enemies of the world, the flesh and the devil, and you may feel surrounded by the world and the pressures of distraction. Some of you persecution. Some of you are facing pressure to conform into the image of the world. We are at times not surrounded by our flesh, but but attacked from within by our own flesh, The, the temptations from within us. And those lustful desires and and greedy instincts and your impatience and your critical spirit and those things that maybe have been nagging you and picking away at you for year after year after year. We too face the threat of the devil. The devil that stirs up fear in you. So many living in fear and anxiety, stirred up by the enemy. Facing the accusations of the devil that you're not good enough, that you don't deserve the Lord's love. Hearing the lies whispered into your ears and you read the word of God, but then the enemy attacks you. And so the world and the flesh and the devil surround us and attack us. And Scripture calls us to put on the armor of God, right? To stand up against our enemies, the devil. Look at what it says in Ephesians 6, reminding us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We don't have a physical army. Our our enemies are are not the people around us, but the spiritual forces. And so we read in the Word of God, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. The call is to put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, whether you think it's better or worse, the people of God in our generation don't stand against physical enemies. Our enemies are of the spiritual forces of darkness and so we're called to be strong to be strong in the strength of the Lord to be reminded that our battle is not against your difficult spouse or your kids that give you headaches or your co-workers that drive you crazy they're not ultimately your enemies your enemy is is the fallen world and the fleshly temptations of your own heart and 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 the enemy who is in power over this present darkness but you see there in verse 12 We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Friends, listen, this battle is a we. It's a plural. It's it's a gathering together in unity. See, just as Israel, generation after generation, could never defend themselves, could never find peace, never found victory over the enemies that still lay in their land around them, we cannot defend ourselves. We cannot have victory in isolation. The people of Jabesh would have been overrun that day on their own. And it wasn't until the people of God came out as one man. And we too need to band together. We too need to fight together. That's a lot of, of what happened and, and even uh, is happening. Well, the retreat just ended two minutes ago. But that's a lot of what happened this weekend at the men's retreat. Some of you I, I see were there with us Friday night or yesterday. Some of your husbands or your or your fathers are at the retreat. We all look forward to the men's retreat. It's a highlight uh, of of life here at Living Hope, just as the women's retreat is for the women in the spring. And there's a lot of things that go on at the men's retreat. There's a lot of snoring. Okay. We always get the update like Saturday morning. Who didn't get any sleep? Okay. Poor, poor Josh said he got two hours of sleep because both of his roommates were just sawing logs all night. Right. There's a ridiculous amount of candy that gets eaten at the men's retreat. Right. Like we try to eat healthy. Like 363 days out of the year, we go to the men's retreat and we just gobble up candy like a seven-year-old that just found his parents' stash, right? A lot of candy gets eaten. A lot of food gets eaten. Aaron, I think, gets the award. He would go through the buffet line with two plates and then he would go back for seconds and third. I'm like, dude, do you not eat at home, right? We we did the obstacle course. A bunch of guys bonded together. Uh, Joe was goofing off, I suspect, fell off the obstacle course, got his finger pinched in the, in the, the, the mechanism and ripped open his finger, right? Which is like a really cool thing on a men's retreat, you know, like you got to have some blood. A lot of flag football was played. I, I did not play flag football. I was worn out from the obstacle course and the climbing tower. It seemed to me from my observation that there were more interceptions thrown than actual receptions, but they seemed to be having a lot of fun. We did an activity yesterday morning, a team building activity where we split up into our small groups and see who could build the tallest tower out of straws, right? A little fourth grade STEM project, but we had fun, okay? All of this is going on, but you know what else is going on amongst the 43 people that were away this weekend? We worshiped together, and man, Miles and, and Mike led us in beautiful worship, and we didn't have those soprano parts. It was all bass and baritone, but we were singing out to the glory of God. We prayed together. We, we listened to the word of God together. But well, one of the most profound things that happened on a men's retreat, and if you've been on a retreat, or if you've been connected in Christian community, you know that one of the most profound ways that God works in those kinds of settings is through that small group discussion. And again and again and again, you hear people testify, you hear people talk about not the teaching that they remember, or or, or the activities that we did, but how profoundly God worked as we gather in groups of five, six, seven and we confess sin, and we reflect on the word that we just heard taught, and we give counsel to one another, and we say, I've been through that, and here's how the Lord worked in my life, and can I pray for you, can I hold you accountable, and you know what happens in those settings? We're fighting together. We're joining together in unison as we see the nation of Israel did, and fighting together, and man, I just want to call and encourage and remind you, Don't don't live this Christian life on your own. Don't fight your battles on your own. As you find people to stand with you, to encourage you, to hold you accountable. People that have have walked one step or two steps or ten steps ahead of you that you can say, I'm going to imitate him as he imitates Christ. People that hold you accountable, that encourage you, that remind you. People that you trust that you can confess your sin to. Find one other person. One other person that you can confide in. Begin there and say, will you fight this battle with me? Will you stand with me? Can we unite together as one man? And and just as the nation did this only under the leadership of their king, friends, we do this, brothers and sisters, we do this under the leadership of our great king Jesus. We rally around him to fight our battles because he has already gone before us. He has already climbed onto the cross. He has soaked up sin, death, and the devil. He has received our punishment, received your shame, received your guilt. He has defeated the enemy on your behalf, and he now leads the people of God. He now leads us as an army against the spiritual forces of evil, not just as a king, but as a king who is victorious, as a king who died and rose again. And so we fight in unity, putting our faith in Christ, putting our hope in him, ultimately letting him lead us in victory because he already has triumphed. Over sin, death, and the devil, he's died on the cross. He's risen again in in the resurrection. Put those scriptures back up again from the previous slide. Listen to Second Corinthians two fourteen. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Thanks be to God that we have a King who always leads us and always leads us in triumph, in a procession. The people of God gathered around King Jesus in victory. Amen. So we stand together and we honor Jesus as King. We stand united together and we fight against all that attacks us. But let's read the the conclusion of this story. Look now at, at chapter 11, verse 12, and we'll see what happens after the battle has been fought, after the victory is theirs, after the enemy has, has run and been scattered. It says this in 1 Samuel 11, verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the, bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go up to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. What, what a beautiful end to the story, right? I've, I've said several weeks in this series, like this is not going to be a happy ending today, right? There are no stories in the hero today. But today, we get a re- joyful ending. Today, we have a hero. Today, the people of God are being renewed, and there's hope. And so the battle is won, and the people are rejoicing and celebrating that Saul has, has led them into victory. They're riding on cloud nine, but some of them are like, wait a minute. Wait a minute, what about that group of guys that a few days ago or a few weeks ago, however long it was, what about those guys that questioned Saul? That grumbled about Saul? What about those worthless skeptics who didn't think Saul was really the king we needed? Who didn't think that he could lead us? They're like, let's bring those guys up. And, and as we celebrate victory, let's have them executed. Now, now that seems like harsh, right? But what they're saying is they're guilty of high treason before the king right? Saul is king. He's now proven himself. And those men should be brought up on charges of treason for their rebellion, for their lack of support. And we should execute them as a sign to all of the people that we stand unified behind Saul and any complainers, any grumblers, any doubters are going to be put out from the nation. Now, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me in this moment if Saul got caught up in it, right? I mean, you can picture it. I mean, the battle is, 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 their bodies are still warm, right? They're still gathering their swords and their arrows. The emotions are high. They're celebrating. Finally, this victory. You could imagine Saul being like, okay, yeah, that, that's what you guys want to do. Like, let's do it, right? Let's validate my kingship. Let, let's approve that I, in fact, am the leader. You can imagine him wanting to... to put down any possible threat. You can imagine him wanting to support the voices of the crowd that were saying, yeah, Saul, we're with you. Let's do this. You can imagine Saul wanting to exert his power. But instead, maybe somewhat surprisingly, Saul responds very differently. Look at verse 13. He basically says to the people that are calling for the heads of the detractors, he says, quiet. No one's going to be executed today. But you see his reasoning. He says, this is the Lord's day. This is the day that the Lord has achieved deliverance in Israel. He says in verse 14, For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Do you see what Saul is saying there? This is God's victory. Yes, the people have disrespected me. Yes, they've sought to undermine my leadership, but this is not my victory. This is God's victory. This is God's day. This is God's work. We're not going to see any more violence today. We're not going to punish our own people. Saul says today we keep peace. Today we honor God. Today we honor God because he has worked among us. And Saul acts in mercy and humility and in reverence for God because he knows God is true king. Now listen, as I, as I said, we, we all know what happens to Saul. Or many of us do, right? His kingship goes south pretty quickly. But do you see in this moment he's being used by God? He's a humble man, full of the Holy Spirit, acting as a servant of God. And he says, you know what, I'm not worried about my detractors because it's not about me, it's about God. I'm not worried about those who slander me. I'm not worried about those who disrespect me or second-guess me or misrepresent me. I'm not worried about the people who are out to, to seek me harm. Why? Because God's in control. This is God's day. This is God's kingdom. This is God's army. This is God's victory. What a beautiful picture for you and I, friends. We see that same picture in Jesus who was slandered and didn't fight back. Who was accused, who was misrepresented, who was lied about, who was betrayed by his own friends. And yet it says in first Peter that he entrusted himself to his father who judges justly. Can I just step aside for a moment and, and maybe give a bit of a footnote? You have people that attack you, that misrepresent you, that are suspicious of you, that don't trust you. Keep your nose out of the dirt. don't don't fight back. Don't try to get back at them. Act with integrity and ultimately trust the Lord because your life, your ministry, your job, your family is not about you. It's about God who leads you. And so just as Saul did, act with mercy, act with integrity. Trust the Lord because it's his day. It's his victory. It's his battle. Let's not be a people, as I've said before, who fight fire with fire. Let's fight fire with water because that makes a whole lot more sense. And peace and humility and joy and love and forgiveness will put down those who slander and defame you in the name of Jesus a lot quicker than anything else the world can offer. So Saul doesn't allow the violence to continue. And then in verse 14, Samuel, who's still a prophet, who's still speaking for God's people, Samuel speaks up and he says, let's all go now together to Gilgal." there we will renew the kingdom, he says in verse 14. So united in victory under their new king's godly leadership, they go to Gilgal before the presence of the people. Now, Gilgal is an important city in the history of the nation. Samuel leading them there is significant. It's where Joshua gathered the people when they entered the promised land, where they erected 12 memorial stones, where they circumcised the men of Israel and renewed their covenant. Samuel is saying, this is now a renewal. This is now a new beginning. And he's recalling their history, recalling their covenant with God. And he's saying, do you remember why we came into the promised land? And just as they gathered at Gilgal, we now gather to renew the kingdom, to have a fresh start. And it says in verse 15 that there they made Saul king before the Lord. Now listen, he had previously already been anointed in private by Samuel. He had publicly been chosen and accepted before the people, but now is the final step. Now is his public coronation, his confirmation, his his leading the nation in unity. And I think it's interesting that it's not until after they fought together, after they have seen Saul leadership, now they're ready to say, yes, we're going to formally make this man king. And now everything changes. Now the nation is reborn. And they offer sacrifices to Yahweh. And they unite together. And they pray together. And they rejoice together. And we all celebrate that a new chapter has begun. And we see in this final section, Israel unites to renew their kingdom. It's the last thing you can fill in this morning, our last key as we wrap up this morning. See, as we've said, God's kingdom has been in disarray since they initially conquered the promised land. And they had some seasons of peace, but there was always been a lot of infighting. And there had been seasons of unity, but a lot of times with no leadership. And there was some prosperity since they entered the promised land, but there was a lot of seasons of scarcity. And at sometimes they were faithful, but more often than not, they they drifted into idolatry. And at times they had victory, but There were also seasons of defeat. But now God is doing a new work in Israel's history. Now He's renewing and He's rebuilding. He's not getting rid of what's worn out, what's chipped and paint peeling and broken and parts missing. He's saying, no, we're going to rebuild it. We're going to rebuild the kingdom. We're going to renew the covenant through the people of Israel. And there's a fresh start. And that was God's purpose for that chapter of His people. But God's heart is always for renewal. God's heart is always to take what is worn out and beat up and broken down and bring new life and repair. And we read in the New Testament that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old in your life is gone and the new has come. Your old broken down sinful heart is gone. You're given a new heart. See, the heart of God in every generation for every people is renewal. Is that God's kingdom would be renewed in your heart and in His world. God is a God who is building and renewing his kingdom on earth. See, God's plan and God's purpose since he created the world has always been that his kingdom would flourish in our world. God's kingdom is his rule, is his reign, bringing purpose to his people, bringing unity, bringing good laws, providing and protecting for his people. God's kingdom comes and it's a kingdom full of love and full of joy and peace and justice and mercy and goodness. And wherever God reigns, wherever God's people submit to Him, wherever God's kingdom comes on earth, there's justice and mercy and goodness in the presence and love of God. And yet we know that the curse of sin has infected every area of God's creation. But yet, going all the way back to Genesis, God has planted seeds that through... Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, one day the nation of Israel would bear a Savior, a King, to bring the kingdom on earth. Look at what the angel proclaimed to Mary in Luke chapter 1. The angel said that that, that her son would be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God would give to Him the throne of His father David and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of His kingdom there will be no end. Somebody say amen. And Jesus, after this angel prophesied his life's work, he came at around the age of 30, declaring and beginning his public ministry. And what does it say in Luke chapter 1? What was his ministry? Soon afterward, he went through all the cities and villages, and Jesus proclaimed, and he brought the good news of the kingdom of God. He He was proclaiming and he was bringing the kingdom of God. Now this is a kingdom that is already not yet. What we mean by that is that the victory has already been won. The kingdom has already come through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And for many of us here today can testify, God's kingdom is in my heart. And His reign and His rule is in me and is with me. And my life has been transformed. My life has been renewed. I am a new creation. And God is building churches we see in the United States. And praise God, in every continent and every nation of the world. And God's word is going out, proclaiming his light in a dark world. And so we pray together as Jesus taught us to pray. Our father who is in heaven, holy is your name. God, would you bring your kingdom? Would you bring your will on earth as it is in heaven? And so we now, as the people of God submitted to the king, we pray that, but we also work for that. And we also await. We await the day when the kingdom that has not yet fully come on earth as it is in heaven, the day when Jesus will return, when evil will finally be defeated. Because even though victory is won, we still see the lingering effects. Full renewal has not yet come. But we await the day when Jesus will return and he will make all things new. And so we pray for that and we work for that. And again, as we've seen again and again in this chapter, not in isolation, not as individuals, but we we pray and we work and we fight united together as one man, as one church, as one people of God. And we proclaim the good news to friends and family and neighbors. And we, we bring the good news. We bring the kingdom of God through acts of service and love as we speak the gospel, as we serve the needy, as we give generously, as we act in salt and light to a dark world. So hear this again as the worship team comes. Hear the call to gather together. To receive Jesus as King. To honor Jesus as King. Can we do that this morning as a united people? And can we fight together in unison? Don't go out here one by one. Tap a spouse. Tap a friend. Tap a member of your accountability group. And say, I I have a fight this week. And I'm facing a battle. Would you stand with me? Because we fight together in unison and we defend one another against all the threats that continue. And we unite together in prayer and in action, in word, and in deed to renew God's kingdom. Amen? That kingdom that starts in our heart, but it floods out across the world, across society and culture and relationships and people until the day that Jesus returns. So stand together with me as we worship, as we anticipate the full and final renewal of God's kingdom is the day when revelation will come true revelation 11:15 where the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever and so god amen yeah amen we join our voices now as we prepare to worship we join our voices now and we sing and we pray and we offer up this song to you in faith that you would fill us, that your spirit would unite us and guide us and lead us in faith. Unite us together, be honored, be lifted up as our king and transform our lives. Renew our hearts, renew our families, renew this church that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.